if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Hebrews, once again, as we continue our exposition of the book of Hebrews. Uh, We're going to continue where we left off, uh, Hebrews 4, verse 3 to 11, but uh, I will read the entirety of the chapter for the sake of our context. So let's turn to Hebrews 4. We'll begin our reading at verse 1. But uh, the text for the sermon will be verses 3 to 11. Please give your attention once again to the reading of God's holy word. These are the very words of God, inspired and infallible. Let us give our attention to it. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, As well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus, or as Joshua, had given them rest, Then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. May God help us do so. Let us pray for the preaching of the word. Our Father and our God, there are truly delightful things in the word of God, that the minister of God needs your help to preach, Father. We pray that you would help the minister preach faithfully in such a difficult text. We pray that you would cause the minister to preach faithfully by your spirit, that the spirit of God would clearly and uh, uh, powerfully show us and demonstrate the eternal rest that we can have in Jesus Christ our Lord. O Father, We pray that the Spirit of the Lord would reveal to us spiritual things, for they are spiritually discerned. Give the power and help of your Spirit 
to the preacher and give the power and help to the ears that will hear. O Father, our great desire is to glorify the Lamb of God, for he is worthy of great glory. So help us give glory to the Lamb of God in the preaching of the word. And to the end that Jesus Christ, Son of God, our High Priest, would be glorified, we pray that you would help me speak, not the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but that which the Holy Ghost teacheth. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a bit of a recap, we remember that the great theme of this chapter is rest, which we remember is really peace or shalom with God, that this is the rest we need. We need this rest as creatures, but especially as those fallen sinners. We need peace with God. We need peace for our weary souls. We need to have the rest that comes when we know that all is well between us and God Almighty. That is the need of every creature. To know, yes, God rules over all. That He is the great King. He is the great Judge of all. He is righteous and holy. He is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts, as this chapter says. And that should terrify us, friends. For we know that the inclination of our hearts is towards wickedness. And to know that we can have peace and rest with God is everything, friends. It should be everything to us. Because the Bible says, There is no peace, there is no rest, saith the Lord unto the wicked. And what a glorious thing then. We have an entire chapter here proclaiming, You can rest in Christ. And that's what we heard last time. That the gospel was the great means of securing this peace and rest. But what we needed to do is mix the word of promise in the gospel with faith. Otherwise, it profits nothing. That we must not just assent to the words of God, but we must receive Jesus Christ from the word by faith. And we must rest on Christ alone for salvation. Otherwise, the word does nothing for us and we have no eternal rest. Even if we have memorized the entirety of the Bible. A terrible thing, friends that there are many who have left this world deluded over the state of their souls. You think about, I was thinking about the, the rich man and Lazarus. You remember the rich man is in hell and he, and he pleads, send Abraham, God, the, uh, Abraham, send rather Lazarus to go and witness to my brothers. And what is it that Abraham said? You have Moses and the prophets. If you won't believe them, then even if a man is raised from the dead, you won't believe. But this man in hell had the very words of Moses and the prophets. And he perished because he did not mix it with faith. And there are many like that who know the word of God, but don't believe it and are doomed to hell eternally. And that was a sobering thing for us to recognize. Well, today, as we continue we find the means by which rest is secured for us. Uh, That the works that secure our eternal rest are entirely done by Jesus. Jesus has done the works of salvation. He has entered into his rest when he was raised again on the third day for our salvation. And that we who believe enter into his rest. And that is how we have peace and rest with God. And what this text also says is that there then remains a Sabbath-keeping for the people of God to commemorate that day in which we enter into Christ. Well, he entered into his rest, and we can enter into through faith. 
Now, this is a very, one of the most difficult and technical texts in the Bible. And so today I pray and trust you will bear with me as I attempt to preach the word, but also rightly divide it. There is going to require quite a bit of technical work. And it'll take a little bit, boys and girls, a little bit more attention on your part today to pay attention to what the word is saying as we exegete the text. So that said, our theme is that there is a first day Sabbath keeping which remains for the people of God and it is a sign of the rest Christ entered into and provides for his people. That the first day Sabbath keeping remains for the people of God and is a sign of the rest Christ entered and provides. And that won't be immediately obvious unless you know Greek, so I'll have to uh, give a little bit of the sense of the Greek text for you. We'll consider our theme under three heads. First is the argument, second is the Sabbaths that are described here, and third is the exhortation of the text. First is the argument. I've already said this, there's no getting around it. This is a very difficult that, uh, text. Uh, it has parenthetical thoughts, as Paul is prone to do in its flow. There are intricate logical arguments you have to follow closely, and you even have to use the marginal notes in your English translation to make full sense of the underlying Greek if you don't know the original Greek language. I was thinking about this. This text certainly qualifies for what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, that our beloved brother Paul, in all his epistles, has some things hard to be understood. This is one of those hard things. But at the end of the day, for your encouragement, this is actually rather a very intuitive text. Um, at least if you look at the big picture first. If you look at the overall argument before you dive into its details. And that's what I want to do for you first. And so that's sometimes a bit backwards from how we approach things in the preaching of the word. But I think it's helpful for this particular text is to give you the argument and then show you how the argument is sustained in the text itself. And so for the argument... There is a great parallelism in this text. There are two parallel works. There are two parallel rests connected to those works and two parallel days that are signs of those works. So two parallel works, two parallel rests connected to those works and two parallel days that function as signs of these great works. And the two parallel works are God's work of creation and Christ's work of redemption. And you remember our larger catechism says so beautifully that God's works of creation and redemption are an abridgment of religion. They really sum up the entirety of our faith. And let's consider the parallels between these works here. Uh, you remember after God's work of creation, boys and girls, what did he do? He rested. He rested from his labors. That's signified by what day of the week? The seventh day of the week, right? After Christ's work of redemption... He rested, and that is signified by the first day of the week. And so these are the two parallel works, these are the two parallel rests, and these are the two parallel days. And the argument being made here by the apostle is this. Since we fell in Eden, we can never ever enter God's rest in creation, signified by the seventh day rest. But also the apostle causes us to praise the Lord that God gave another rest, Christ's rest in redemption, signified by a different day, the first day of the week. And these two rests, you probably understand, are associated with two covenants, right? The first rest of creation is associated with that covenant of works. 
And the condition for entering that seventh day rest, or rather staying in it, maintaining it, was that after some probationary period, we would enter it. But the terms were this in Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam broke that covenant. And by that, one man's sin, uh, sin entered the world. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, Romans 5.19. And we all fell in Adam and were barred from God's seventh day rest. And, and so, so viscerally portrayed with the cherubim and the flaming sword barring the way to the tree of life. No man will enter that seventh day rest. But uh, this is where we praise the Lord, friends. God is so unfathomably unfathomably merciful, isn't he? And he opened another way of rest by providing a second covenant, the covenant of grace, wherein a redeemer would keep God's commandments for us where Adam failed to do it and that he would win us rest. That covenant was promised straight away after the fall in Genesis 3.15 when God told the devil that Christ shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And on the cross, Jesus Christ was bruised and crushed for what? Our iniquities. And that same cross, though, was the crushing of Satan. He spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Colossians 2.15, fulfilling Genesis 3.15. Because he did not remain in the grave, did he, friends? Boys and girls, you know what happened. Three days later, he was raised again from the dead in triumph. 1 Corinthians 15 says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that third day was our first day of the week, isn't it? The day he arose, entered his rest, what we call now his exaltation after our redemption was fully accomplished. So the exhortation of the text is this. You will never enter rest through the seventh-day creation rest. The only, only rest for your souls is in the first-day resurrection rest of Jesus. And you enter Christ's rest solely by being united by faith to him. So that he's warning the Hebrews, if you depart from Christ, if you do not, if you do not put your faith and hope in him, there will never be rest for you. Because the way to life is barred from God's work of creation because of our sinfulness. And so, you find now in the text these things taught. And you will find the first creation work, rest, and day in verses 3 to 5. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. So you remember, God finished his work of creation on the sixth day. He entered his rest on the seventh, as verse 4 says. But what is he sworn in his wrath due to our sin? If they shall enter into my rest. That's a citation of Psalm 95.11. And the translation today may not strike you the way it should. That translation signifies indignation. It means they will not enter into my rest. The meaning is more like this, as if they will enter into my rest. 
when God speaks of a seventh day rest. Even today, right, uh, you might use uh, as if uh, to signify you will not permit something. You might tell a salesman, as if I will pay you that much for that car. And that's kind of the sense here in the King James. That's the idiom in the Hebrew. And so in God's wrath, he swore essentially as if they should enter into my rest. As if you sinners can enter into my rest. Because of our sinfulness, our disobedience, and our rebellion, we were cast out of Eden. But even Eden was not meant to be our place of rest. Uh, You can read uh, many good theologians on it. This is not my point today. But heaven was meant to be our rest if we had obeyed God perfectly. After a probationary time, we believe if Adam had kept the covenant, the Lord would bring him into heaven, into the direct presence of God. But that was never ordained to be. God ordained Adam and uh, Eve to fall and that we would fall. Why? If you read, for instance, the book of Romans, the book of Romans, especially chapter 9, tells us that it was for the glory of God that we would, we would see and know the love of God, the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, something we would never know if we had never fell, that we would know and see the judgment and justice of God, that though we deserve hell and justice, and so many will receive that justice, we who have come to Christ have mercy, and we see how great that mercy is. And we would never know God's mercy and we would never know his justice if God didn't ordain us to fall in Adam. And for the sake of his glory, that we may praise him all the more, he has ordained that no one will come in to that seventh day rest. None of us can, because there is no peace or rest unto the wicked. And what does the Bible teach us? Um, I believe we had uh, one young person quote uh, Romans 3.23 in our catechism time. The Bible teaches we are all wicked. That verse says that we have all come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And elsewhere in Romans 3, in verse 12, it says there is none. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Not me, not you, not anyone outside of Jesus Christ. And so we will never enter God's rest of creation. And so that's where we find that first parallel line, God's work of creation, its rest signified by the seventh day that none will enter. And again, I'll go back to this as we think of the main establishing theme. Uh, God would be just to leave us in that state. Hopeless, doomed forever. Barred from heaven, doomed to hell forever. So let us resolve, friends, to ever praise him that he gave us another promise, another rest, another day to revel in, in verses 5 through 8. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus, as Joshua, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There's another day, friends. There's another rest that is promised to us. And this is the text that gives us hope. But let us consider verse 8, and let me deal with it briefly because of our authorized version and its translation, which says, if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. 
Now, you understand that uh, the uh, authorized version just literally transliterates the, the, the Greek into English, whereas a lot of uh, newer translations will actually give you what the, uh, we're more familiar with the Old Testament names of people. This is Joshua here. Jesus, this Jesus is Joshua, the son of Nun, who brought Israel into Canaan. Uh, boys and girls, you might know this, but the Hebrew name for both Jesus, our Savior, and Joshua, the son of Nun, is Yeshua. But in the Greek New Testament, Yeshua becomes Jesus, and when going from Greek to English due to some uh, peculiarities that involve German, uh, we end up with J and Jesus. And so I hope that explains to you why it says Jesus, but refers to Joshua, because you would take this the wrong way if you think Jesus hasn't given us rest, right? Uh, this refers to Joshua, Israel's captain after Moses. And the Greek language has the same problem that the authorized, not really a problem, same uh, issue that the authorized version has. That's why you might notice in, in verse 14, it distinguishes the Jesuses here. Uh, Jesus, the son of God, to make sure that you understand that the first reference is to Joshua and the second is to the son of God. Because in the Greek language, it has that same uh, issue, so to speak. Anyway, with that uh, there, because we are using the authorized version, I thought I would note that. And what our text then is saying is this, that Joshua did not give the people of God rest when he conquered the promised land. And you know, this is a great, great snare for the people of God, for the Jews put their hopes that the rest that they would possess would be an earthly Canaan. And you have to think that the Hebrews were tempted in this direction too. To see what, you know, why did so many of the crowds abandon Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry? Because they thought he was going to take over the promised land and give them earthly Canaan, and that was going to be their rest. Many turned against Jesus. That was their fault, because the Bible is clear in Psalm 95 that Canaan is not the rest that we need. And that prompts the apostles' correction. And so in the seventh verse, he tells us that Psalm 95 promised us a different rest. Again, he limiteth, decreed, that is, a certain day, saying in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, and now he cites Psalm 95, verse 7, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. The logic here, and I, I trust you will bear with me here, uh, the logic might be hard to follow, but it is really full of rich insight. Joshua never gave them rest. You know that. Open the books of history in your Bible. God's people sinned in the promised land and he ejected them. We thought about that in Psalm 102 this morning, that they were ejected out of Canaan and in Babylon. And Psalm 95, and you think of the brilliance here that the Holy Ghost gives the apostle. Psalm 95 is Paul's proof because when was that psalm written? While they were in the promised land. And so then he says, clearly the promised land was not the rest we need. And he cites Psalm 95, 7. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Paul says there is another day of rest God has decreed. Again, he limiteth or decrees a certain day, and then he cites the psalm. This is not the rest of the seventh day, but another day that represents the gospel and Christ's rest. Okay, so he has shown thus far the creation rests on the seventh day. We are barred from entering God's rest, but there is another rest. And it is not the rest of Canaan, but it is the rest of Jesus Christ and the rest of his redemption. And that brings us to the parallel revelation of the glorious gospel rest in verse 10. 
For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. And the he here, and this is the part that you really have to exegete the text correctly, the he signified here is Jesus Christ. The sense is, for Jesus that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. It's not immediately evident that Jesus is the one referred to here, but it is the parallel with God's works that clue you in. That this is a work that can be compared to the work of God. For his person has ceased from his own works, and those works are parallel to God's, parallel to God's work of creation and God's rest. What other person has ceased from their works as God has? No mere man, only the God-man has done it. And another clue in the exhortation uh, is, the, is this. All the exhortations thus far, when they refer to us, are in first person plural. Let us therefore fear. Unto us was the gospel preached. We who have or which have believed. But here is a singular reference to a particular he that has entered his singular rest. And that's why the best commentators like John Owen see that this is Christ. It becomes clear when you look through the text very closely. And it is Christ's work of redemption that he has rested from here. No person can say that their works right, have uh, allowed them to enter into rest. And when Christ finished his work, boys and girls, what day was he raised on? The first day of the week. Right, children? And what did we say? All his works of redemption are accomplished. He rests eternally from his work of salvation. He said on the cross, it is finished. And then he was raised into exaltation, never to suffer again. A a glorified God-man. And that is the parallel rest that he enters that parallels the creation day of rest. And how glorious that rest is, verse 14. Seeing then what we have a, a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. That is his rest. He has passed into the heavens. He rules at the right hand of God. How did Hebrews 1.3, when the epistle began, uh, go? When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Our Lord Jesus Christ has entered his rest in the heavens. Redemption is fully accomplished, people of God, for us on the cross. And that is the rest we enter into if we believe on Jesus by faith. And that's why verse 3 can say, for we which have believed do enter into rest. Even though that same verse says, as I have sworn in my wrath, that they shall not enter into my rest. He's speaking of that creation rest. We who believe enter into rest, but then we are barred from that original rest. And how is that resolved? When we see here that we have Jesus Christ who has entered into his rest, and we which have believed do enter into that rest, united to him by faith. And so, as there are two works and there are two rests, there are two days that go along with it. That day of rest in redemption is the first day, not the seventh day of the week. It is today, the Lord's day. That's what it's called. That's what the Apostle John calls it, that first day of the week. 
This is the another day Paul writes of. He says there is another day. This is all clear in the text. There is another day, not the seventh day, that we find rest. And this is the great day when Jesus rose from the dead to show us he has paid it all. When the tomb was emptied and he entered his eternal rest. Our Savior never again to be humiliated and the beginning of his eternal exaltation. The day signified in verse 9, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And you might ask, Pastor, where is the allusion to a day here? I don't see a day, I see a rest. Well, the answer is you have to actually look at the Greek text here. Uh, Your King James probably has a marginal note on the word rest, which says, or keeping of a Sabbath. Greek is sabbatismos, uh, a Sabbath keeping. I'm really not certain why the authorized version translates that word as rest, because it is different from the other Greek words all throughout the chapter for rest, katapau. Uh, uh, but sabbatismos is very unique and means a Sabbath keeping. That is literally what it means. In fact, the ESV and you know have very little to say uh, when it comes to the ESV, when it comes to that translation. Even as a critical text translation, I think you can do better. But the ESV translates verse 9. This is one area I will commend it. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, is what the ESV translates it. Because it doesn't actually make any sense to just translate it rest. The sense here is that there remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. But it is not the old seventh day Sabbath. Our text twice says another day is appointed in verses 7 and 8. And that appointed day, we confess, is the first day Sabbath that signifies Christ's exaltation and Christ's rest in redemption. The first day is the day that he arose the day John called the Lord's Day in Revelation 1.10, which is still, that, that, that word translated Lord's Day is still the Greek word for their Sunday in the Greek language. And so, we have two works, the work of creation and the work of redemption. We have two rests, God's rest on the seventh day and Christ's rest on the first day. We have a seventh day Sabbath that is past and a first day Sabbath that remains. And I am thankful that you have, I trust, stayed with me thus far, even with this quick exegesis of the text. It's difficult to be sure. But once you see the parallel works, days, and rests, the text is clear. Okay, so let us now not just understand it. Let us apply it as we consider our second heading, the Sabbaths. Now, before I get to the exhortation in the text in our third heading, I want to deal with the doctrine of the Sabbath because it arises here. For this is a potent And uh, this is a potent text against two significant errors that you find in the church today. The first is to do away with the Sabbath entirely, and the second is to say there is a Sabbath, but it is on the seventh day. And this text contradicts both of those errors. What does this text teach us about the Sabbath? First, that it is a sign of what? It is a sign that grabs our attention, that we find rest in Christ. That is what this text is all about, having rest in Christ. It is not about being idle one day in seven. It is not primarily, primarily that is, about physical rest. It points, it is a sign of the rest for our souls. It is a sign that shows us that we have a day to find peace in Christ, that shows us of our peace in Christ rather, and to delight in his rest. It's a day where we are meant to hear all the day Christ call out in Matthew eleven twenty eight thirty. 30. 
Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find what? Rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is a day, friends, to put away the world. It is a day to put away the labors of this present world. It is a day to find our amusement not in, in, in the world, but our enjoyment in Christ. A day where we say, this world will never give me rest. I am bound for heaven and a heavenly rest that Christ has purchased by his work. And I will be where Christ is. And as Christ was raised on the first day of the week, I will be raised and I will have eternal rest for body and soul. All because he has borne my guilt and my shame and my sin and made a way to heaven for me. That is our great need. And due to our great sinfulness, we forget this fundamental need of our soul. But once a week, beloved, God has designated the Sabbath as a sign that you are separated unto God, that he by his own works has procured rest for you. What was the teaching in Exodus 31, 13? Verily my Sabbaths you shall keep. Why? For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that ye may know that I am the Lord that what? Doth sanctify you. It is a sign that you are Christ's holy people. That you have been taken out of this present age. You have been taken away from this world, friends. And he has sanctified you to himself. Is that not what the New Testament says Jesus has done for us? He has sanctified us. He has separated us from the world to himself. 1 Corinthians 1-2 says, Them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. What does that mean? That means separation. You are separated from the people of God. 1 Peter 2.9 But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar or distinct people. Are we? Are we distinct? What are the signs that we are distinct? These same terms in the New Testament are applied to the Old Testament saints as well, being sanctified by the Lord. Israel then of the flesh sanctified by the Lord, separate from the pagans around them, having a day to signify that they are not of this world. And we do too, friends. We are a holy nation, separated unto God by Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the Sabbath tells you this. And and the thing is, you buck against it, and I do too at times. The Sabbath marks that you are not of this world. When you are here... When you say, I will set apart a, a, a day unto God, what are you saying? I am not like the worldling. I, I have eternal rest in Christ. I, I am headed to heaven. Much worldliness is in, this tr- in the church, friends, because we don't keep anymore this principle of separation. The church has become worldly. And I will say a, a, a major part of it, not the only part of it, is the abandonment of the sign of separation, which is the Sabbath. Beloved, if someone looks at you strange, even in the church, and asks you, some, maybe a question like this, and, and often they are truly perplexed. Even in the church today, we talked about the church's weakness this morning and its declension. 
But they might ask you a question like, why did you turn down a good paying job to keep the Sabbath day? Why are you making far less than you could so that you can spend a day holy unto God? What will you tell them, friends? What will you say? You say, beloved, say something like this. The reason I keep it is because I am heading to where they rest from their labors. That's where I'm headed. That's where I'm going. I keep the Sabbath commandment as a sign of that. Weekly, I am reminded that this world is not my home, that I lay up treasure in heaven. My labor is for that which endures eternally. Now, today you'll find Christians say things like this. Well, maybe okay, you don't have to work, but why not enjoy the amusements of the world on the Sabbath day? Why do you give that up too? What are you going to say? Oh, beloved, you say something like, is not my aim, does the Bible not teach me that my aim is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Am I not meant to enjoy God more than I enjoy this world? My precious Savior who bled for me, who has come very close to me, given me his spirit, am I not to enjoy him? Will I, if I don't enjoy him today, one day out of the week, how will I enjoy him eternally so? How do I know I am not Lot's wife? And I am looking to Sodom. And on the day when he calls me, I cast my gaze back on the earth. And he tells me, depart from me, I never knew you. Verse 9 literally says, this would be a literal translation of the Greek. There remaineth therefore a sabbatism to the people of God. Remains. Remains, friends, because we are prone to think it is done away with. It remains as a sign we have entered into the rest of Jesus Christ. And what I want to tell you this is this, and the reason I'm spending so much time on Sabbath is because it is grossly neglected and perverted today. The Sabbath is the very best commandment of the ten to show you that the law of God is not contrary to grace. How perverse are we that we want to ditch this one of ten commandments? But what is the Sabbath a sign of? It is the sign of Christ's work. That he has given us rest. It is a sign of the rich and abundant grace of God through which we receive mercy. Only twisted, sinful men like us can take a day of mercy and grace and call it legalism. Only men who have no desire for eternal rest can say that the Sabbath is awful. How the devil and the world have turned Christians against Christ's rest. We don't even remember it anymore. That's the first error, is to do away with the Sabbath entirely. But then some who know the Ten Commandments, and at least have this much integrity, to know that the Fourth Commandment is a moral commandment, along with the other nine, that they abide forever, they say that the Sabbath is on Saturday instead of the Lord's Day or Sunday. You know that the Seventh-day Adventists and others teach this awful error. But but our text is helpful, friends, to see the terrible error in that because it is Judaizing to keep the seventh day Sabbath. It is a return as well to a broken covenant where God says, you will not enter my creation rest. And this is why inevitably, you can track this historically, that all seventh day groups lose the gospel because they miss Christ's rest. The creation rest they want that God says no one will enter, and that is the folly of the seventh-day Sabbath. The first-day Sabbath speaks of better things, beloved. The resurrection of Christ 
as the first day of a new creation. And their text gives us the theology undergirding the day change. And that theology is reflected for us, right? You know, we've looked at the theology, so I'm not going to repackage uh, that, that there remaineth therefore a sabbatism to the people of God. The apostle says there is another day and not the seventh day. But we, ha- we always know that the Bible does not contradict itself. And if this is true theology, then it must be reflected in the Gospels and the Acts and the Epistles. And it is. After the resurrection, Christ only visits his church on the first day. John 20, 19 says, being the first day of the week. Note that the apostle says, it is the first day. The disciples were assembled, that sounds like Sabbath keeping, and came Jesus and stood in the midst. Then in John 20, 26, a few verses down, the following week, again on the first day, he comes again as the disciples were assembled again. And then in the Acts, chapter 20, verse 7, and upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. Notice when the disciples gathered. Not the seventh day, never, but always the first. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, again, because Christians gather for their Sabbath on the first day, Paul writes, upon the first day of the week, Let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him. And of course, in the Revelation chapter 1, John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. The the testimony of the New Testament is to say that there is another day, as Hebrews 4 says, and that day is the first day of the week. And so Hebrews 4 gives us the theology, and the rest of the New Testament shows us the practice that we are to commemorate the rest of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the first day. So I'll just say this. Do not let the seventh day folks fool you. It was never tradition. It was never the Church of Rome. And I believe even the Seventh-day Adventists say that the mark of the beast is the first day Sabbath. Crazy stuff. But it was Jesus Christ that changed the day of rest to honor his finished work. You tell them, show me in my Bible, after the resurrection, when Jesus Christ meets us on the seventh day. Ask them, where do the Christian disciples, what day do they assemble on? The seventh or the first? It is clear to see in the Bible, and take them to Hebrews 4, and say that there is another day, not the seventh, where we find rest. Jesus changed the day of rest to honor his finished work. And glory to God, we begin our week now in rest. Not looking forward to it on the seventh day, but beginning. We start our week. And it's a terrible thing. I thought about this. I grew up thinking Monday was the first day of the week. Sunday, the Lord's Day, is the first day of the week. And now you're even noticing some tech companies are trying to say, would you like a calendar to reflect the, uh, the first day on the column to be Monday? Don't do it. You're going to forget that we enter rest on the first day of the week. And you think about the Hebrews, right? We come back to the text and we think of the context. How necessary it was that they know this. That they needed to be a separate people from the apostate Jews who kept a Saturday Sabbath. That the Hebrews were exhorted to keep the first day Sabbath with Christian disciples. And you think about what that would have done, right? This is another aspect of their persecution, If they were to stop assembling on the seventh day and assemble on the first day, this is going to mark them out. But the apostle says you must lay claim to the gospel by faith. 
This is another thing that would have pressured them to return to Judaism. And so this teaching in Hebrews 4 is necessary to never turn back to Judaism's seventh day. You think about, again, context of don't turn back from Christ. Friends, you know this. I don't probably have to tell most of you this. Uh, You and I will be similarly persecuted for keeping the first day Sabbath. Sad to say, even in the church, at least until the revival we thought of in Psalm 102 occurs. My exhortation is when people try to pressure you to let go of the Sabbath day is keep your eye on the gospel. Remember that you have peace with God in Christ. You have the rest that Christ promises. That your Sabbath rest is not only you honoring God by keeping the fourth commandment, but it also demonstrates to you that you are not of this world. And if I can't give up one day, right, if, I, if, if, if I'm going to faint under such slight adversity as this, I have to wonder, am I truly committed to the Lord Jesus Christ? If you are convinced of these principles out of the Bible, why do you think if you cannot, if you will fold, right, when, when friends or, or family or workplace says, well, you've got to break this Sabbath commandment, why do you think you are going to stand firm when a gun is put to your head? You need to remember this, this sign signifies you're not of this world. You honor Christ and his resurrection. You believe when you, when you keep the sign. And you must keep it this way. There's a way to keep the Sabbath that does none of this, right? So do these things. You believe you are resting in Jesus Christ eternally when you keep the Sabbath. Say that to yourself. Oh soul, when I keep the day, when I keep the day, I believe I have eternal rest. That Christ was raised for my justification. And that as he was raised, I will be raised too. I celebrate on the first day there will be a resurrection. And as our bodies start to fade, and as we get older, or maybe we are racked with pain and grief and sickness, you celebrate on the first day, beloved, there is a resurrection. And I will be raised as Christ was raised. And I will have eternal life, body and soul. That is the heart of the Sabbath, and that is why Isaiah 58 says, delight in it. We delight in the fact that our precious Redeemer has made a way to heaven for us. It's a day to celebrate and delight in this. Jesus Christ has given us peace with God, all from his works and not ours. That though the way to the tree of life was barred in Eden with flaming swords, it was opened again when God slayed his close companion, the Son of God. In the flesh, when he turned his sword against Jesus Christ, when he obeyed the commandments of God and the blood of of his offering to God was given to us who believe for eternal rest. Every Sabbath preaches, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. May you use the Lord's day to remind you of that beloved and delight in Christ. Put away the world for one day of the week, friends. This is not your home. Rest from your labors and your striving. Seek rich communion with Christ. Pray. You know, you ask, what do I do on the Lord's Day? Well, it's not a sermon about that. But I can just think about what the Apostle John was doing on the Lord's Day in prayer and in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ when he gets that glorious revelation, doesn't he, on the Lord's Day, which says all will be well. All will be well, for Christ has triumphed. 
These are the things we receive on the Lord's Day, friends. And we must make sure we use this day that way. Meditate richly on the Word. Enjoy the fellowship of Christ's body, as we will tonight. Enjoy the family altar of religion as well. And and learn to sigh when the Sabbath is over. Those of us who have kept the Sabbath in these ways, we are so crushed when the day is over. Because we long all the more for that eternity of rest where we will rest in the arms of Christ. And there is no Monday but an eternal Sabbath rest. I believe that uh, our Dutch brethren, right, in their, in their Heidelberg says that, um, that uh, when we keep the fourth commandment, and I'm paraphrasing this just off the top of my head, that we enter into that eternal Sabbath rest, which is to come. That's a beautiful way, beautiful way. Commune with Christ on the day, for we will commune with him eternally. And we'll conclude with our final heading, which is our exhortation to enter this rest. Verse 11 says, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Now, speaking of Christ's rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. This returns us to the warning of last week in verse 1. Let us, therefore, fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, here again, he switches from the word for the Sabbath in verse 11 to the word for a rest showing that there is a distinction here. The Sabbath is a pledge and a sign of the rest of Christ. But the exhortation now is enter the substance. Enter the substance of it. Enter the rest of Christ, eternal life. John 17, 3. What is life eternal? That they may not, might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That is what you all need to have made sure you have done here today, friends. You need to make sure that you have, you have entered that rest, that you know Jesus Christ and that you have found rest in him, trusting him alone for salvation. Can you say, this? the Lord interrogating you, can you say, I have laid hold of Christ? Can I say Christ has laid hold of me first? Can I say that? Do I have the fruits that evidence it? Do I have saving faith? Have I the fruit of repentance as well? Can you say it, beloved, that your hope is solely in Christ? That if there is no rest for my soul in Christ, there is no rest at all. Do not leave this place tonight without saying amen in your soul, friends. That I believe this. This is what I believe. I believe that Christ has given me rest and I have taken hold of him by faith. It's the only way to have rest for your soul. And it is freely offered tonight. Jesus Christ pleading through the text. Take him for your Savior and Lord, and then repent of your sin and live separated unto God for himself. And then he says, you enter into that rest. What is wonderful is the Bible teaches us, and for the sake of time, I can't go through all of it, but the Bible teaches you enter that rest immediately. Yeah, you have the fullness of it eternally. But if you have Christ, you have found immediate rest from your sins. You have peace with God. You have joy in the Holy Ghost. Today, today you have rest. I can say by faith, I know Jesus Christ has loved me and gave himself for me, that I am crucified with Christ, and that I now have peace and joy in God and rest. I have shalom, peace with God. There is no more enmity for those of us who have come to God in Christ. 
And I can say then, I have rest. But you might ask, why does he say labor to enter into this rest when it is freely given? Does scripture not say, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness, Romans 4, 5. And we say, praise the Lord. Is this a contradiction then? No. This labor here is the labor of the third chapter. The labor to live as those who are the inheritors of eternal life. To live as a people who are separated unto God, who do not have an evil heart of unbelief, as we heard in chapter 3. It is a constant labor, friends, and this is a labor that we are called to undertake. Always called to ask, do I have an evil heart of unbelief? And am I being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin? Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. This labor here is a labor that calls us to strive against sin and make progress in holiness. All by the grace of God that we need to do it. Jesus said, right? Jesus himself said, He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Matthew 24, 13. And this is what the book of Hebrews is all about, isn't it? A warning that apostasy is a very real danger. That we might have deluded ourselves with thinking we have entered Christ's rest because we made a decision and we filled out a card in a stadium with 50,000 people. And we never once attended church. We never once bore the marks of grace, the fruits that are good works and and repentance and a, a striving against sin. How did Paul walk? We're called to labor in the same way. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and towards men. Acts 24, 16. This is striving. This is exercise. This is labor. In other words, he says he makes it his aim to please God. And you must too. You must labor in this way. Not to be saved, but as an evidence of it. Repent of your sin when you sin. Trust in the grace of the Lord to cover your sins. Walk as a Christian beloved who is headed to the celestial city. A man or woman who follows after Christ, what did he tell them? They have a habit of denying themselves, taking up their cross and following after him. Let us labor to enter into the rest. And that is a testimony that you have entered Christ's rest and have a born again heart. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. In this congregation, we regularly call for you to examine yourself before the Lord's Supper. For the Lord has ordained that sacrament to have you examine yourself in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. What a wonderful thing it is, right? We don't go into that with fear and trembling. What a uh, wonderful thing it is to get to the table and, and say, yes, I have been an unprofitable servant. I have done that which is my duty to do. And yes, my striving is far less than it is meant to be. But yes, I am striving after Christ. I do have marks of grace. I do believe the gospel hope. Lord, deal with my unbelief. I have looked into my heart. I find it. I find sin there. Lord, help me. I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And the Christian life, we'll look at this in more detail another time, is a faith, a life full of spiritual exercises. There is what is called a habit of faith. When saving faith is given to a believer, it makes a habit of exercising faith. 
And that's the exhortation here in our text. Lay hold of Christ, take hold of his rest, and then exercise the faith that you have. And that's a great testimony that you are truly resting in Christ. And these things are not burdens. What did the Lord say when he came to give you rest? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what is being spoken of here. We have rest, but there is still a burden, but it is a light one because Christ helps you bear it himself. Praise the Lord. Well, we uh, cannot cover much more this afternoon. We'll have to leave it there. But may you all leave this place knowing you have the rest of Christ. Amen. Please rise for prayer if able. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for the rest purchased by our Lord Jesus. Father, we could never purchase this rest. We could never earn it ourselves. And how you would be in your rights, Lord, to leave us in, confirm us in unbelief, all of us. So, Father, we thank you and bless you that there is rest for the people of God. Help us to love your Sabbath and help us to enjoy the separation from the world that we are those who will be saved if we do believe on the Lord. And may the Sabbath be a sign of it, not that we are saved by the Sabbath, but rather that we would keep it as a sign that we are headed to glory. Father, we pray that if any here don't know the Savior, you would give them the good gifts of faith and repentance, that this would be the day of salvation for them, that they would call on the name of the Lord. And if their conscience has been burdened by their guilt, Father, you would take it away and give them the rest that so many of us enjoy. Oh, Father, would you do this not for their sake, but for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that he would have another voice or voices still to praise him. We thank you and bless you for our Redeemer, and we pray this in his name. Amen.